1994. It was a beautiful year. I know it was a few years ago and some of you weren't even born yet, but listen to me here. It was a highlight of us millennials' lifetime. Asa Bass, Mariah Carey, Boys to Men, Celine Dion. Top of the country charts was a man by the name of John Michael Montgomery, Clay Walker, Joe Diffie, Brooks and Dunn, Faith Hill, Alan Jackson. My word, now you know why we're so proud as millennials. That was just one year, it was an entire generation, my friends. A couple of athletes were in the news, not for good reasons. <laughs> Nancy Kerrigan, O.J. Simpson. Two new TV shows that year, ER and Friends. Check these movies out, classics. Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, and the original Lion King. <laughs> Boomers, Gen Xers, Gen Zers, Gen Alpha-ers. Now you know why we're so proud. Back to country music for a moment. Travis Tritt, Clint Black, Tanya Tucker, Winona Judd performed at Super Bowl 28 that year. It wasn't the greatest. I watched it again this week. Speaking of the Super Bowl, though, Cowboy fans, are you guys here? Still loud and proud, as always. You beat the Bills for the second year in a row. Got a Super Bowl championship, the fourth in franchise history. It's been downhill ever since. Just kidding. You won a Super Bowl two years later, and then it's really been downhill ever since. Fast forward a little bit. We're going to have to use our memory, our imagination. Uh, by the way, trigger warning, if you went to the University of Michigan, I had a guy in the lobby that said I almost made him cry. So, so just give that to you. September 24th, it was a Saturday much-anticipated college football game between the mighty Colorado Buffaloes, who started off great this year, didn't they? And not so much since. They're playing the Michigan Wolverines in Michigan Stadium. 106,000 people are there. My friend Kevin, apparently, was literally on the sidelines. He showed me his Michigan socks afterwards. I wanted to show the video, but apparently there's copyright laws, so we can't do that. So we'll show some pictures here in a few moments. But imagine, or remember with me, Rashawn Salam, rest in peace, scores a touchdown with two minutes and 16 seconds left in the game. The Buffs are down by less than a touchdown against the Wolverines. The Buffs kick an onside kick. They don't get it. But their defense forces a three and out, and Michigan punts the ball. The Buffs get the ball on their own 15-yard line with 22 seconds left. They got to go 85 yards in 22 seconds. They have to get a touchdown because they're down by five points. First play, Cordell Stewart drops back and throws a 21-yard 20 yard pass, and the clock stops with six seconds left. Basically enough time for one play. Cordell Stewart, quarterback of the Buffs, drops back, show a picture, and he heaves a pass 72 yards in the air. Now pause for a moment. I was watching this game as a husky 11-year-old boy. I remember it like it was yesterday as a huge Buffs fan. Cordell heaves it. It bounces, and Michael Westbrook reaches out, got a picture again, and catches it for a touchdown. The Buffs win as the clock expires. 
And there's probably Kevin crying on the field there. Just kidding, Kevin. Buffs win in amazing fashion. It's called the, uh, the Miracle at Michigan. You can go home and watch it on YouTube later today. But that specific play call, called by the coaches with six seconds left, it was made famous 10 years earlier when a little man by the name of Doug Flutie from Boston College threw a pass 48 yards, caught for a touchdown to win against Miami. Protestants, Catholics, atheists, we all know what the play is called. When your back's up against the wall and you chuck it down the field in the last minute, desperation. Say it with me. What's that throw called? (laughs) Wow, you guys are on it. No, it's interesting. You never see a Hail Mary in the middle of the game, do you? Maybe at the end of half or at the end of the game, it's brought in for a last second play. Desperation. And it's generally last play that you would ever call. It's because the rest of the game, we have a game plan. The rest of our lives, we depend on ourselves. We depend on our own effort, our own training, our own practice, our own teammates. But when we face crisis or desperation, when we run out of time, when there's nowhere to turn, we throw up a Hail Mary pass and maybe say a prayer, not only in football, but in our own lives, right? I'm pretty good at throwing these kinds of prayers around. Anytime I have to go to the doctor or the dentist, I'm throwing some last second desperation prayers up. When my kids are sick, same type of prayer, just hoping that we get through unscathed. Maybe you've gone through life and you don't really call on God all that much until you really need something. You're praying that she'll say yes or that diagnosis was wrong. You throw up a prayer. Listen, it's not bad to pray in the times of desperation. In fact, one of the most amazing things about God and his characteristics is that he's humble enough to listen to us and accept our prayers when we turn to him in desperation, even when we've been ignoring him for years. Prayers of desperation have been the foundation of faith for many people throughout the history of Christianity. But these kinds of prayers by themselves, they're not sufficient to sustain our lives as we follow Jesus together. Prayer has the potential to be so much more meaningful, more rich, more deeper than the last minute throws that we throw up in times of desperation. In the early church and the first followers of Jesus, they knew this. It's why the early church centered their lives around a few things that we're looking at together in this sermon series called Life Together, where we're focusing on the book of Acts chapter 2 specifically. See, the book of Acts is one of the many books in the Bible, and it's kind of a historical book. It's a recounting, among other things, about the growth of the early church. So I think it's important, and we think it's important to go back and look at the book of Acts and read and study and, and see what... Uh, made that church different, what made the followers of Jesus, the original onset of Christianity, different. The book of Acts was written by a man by the name of Luke, who was a doctor, who whether or not you've been to church very often, you probably heard the name Luke because he wrote one of the four gospels or narratives or stories about Jesus's life. There's some debate as to when the book was actually written between uh, scholars that are uh, studying the Bible, but we know that the book was written about 40 to 65 years after the life of Jesus. And these verses from Acts that we're looking at together for four weeks, they depict 
the initial organization of the early church. Those who responded to and followed Jesus despite the persecution and difficulties of following him. It's almost as if it's a blueprint for what our church, Outer West Community Church, could look like in 2023. In fact, one of my New Testament professors in grad school says this of the verse that we're looking at today. Verse 42 of Acts 2 is regularly cited as the earliest description of four central elements in Christian worship, which should characterize the church as it gathers in any time or any place. So this verse is worth considering, worth looking at, worth studying. Look with me at the verse briefly, verse 42. They, which is the first, the first early followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, as Andrew talked about last week, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early followers of Jesus, Luke says, devoted themselves deeply to four things. And today we're going to talk about how the early church and the early followers devoted themselves to prayer. And maybe more importantly is we're going to talk about how you and I, some 2,000 years later, can devote ourselves to prayer. We can devote as a community of faith to this idea, this concept of prayer. And now, before half of you, the like super Christians, check out because you're like a prayer master, I want to encourage you to stay with me today because prayer is a deeply complex subject. In fact, I tried to find out how many books were written on the topic of prayer this week, and I couldn't find it, I think because there's so many books that are written. But I did do a Google search of how to pray, and I had a response of 2.1 billion articles or resources. Billion. I'm 2.1 billion. So I think it's a subject that a lot of people have questions about and that we can continue to learn about. I want to also go out on a limb and, and say that despite all the resources out there, the four characteristics of the early church, prayer is probably one of the hardest for us in our modern day. And that's why I want to challenge you, wherever you're at in your relationship with God, is to hang with me today. Because I think if we're honest, prayer is probably one of the uh, things in following Jesus that we're mo we feel most guilty about. Like, if I really loved God, then I would just pray all the time, and it would just flow out of me naturally. But it's just not true. Prayer's hard. Look at the first disciples of Jesus. Think about these disciples, these followers of Jesus. Uh, they had an up front, front row seat to the greatest prayer of all time, the MVP of prayer. And they noticed that when he prayed, things happened. They noticed that one time he was praying on a mountaintop with two or three of his friends, Peter, James, and John, and it says this in Luke chapter 9, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Another time Jesus was praying and the, and the scripture saying, you've heard this one, is that he was praying so intensely that drops of blood began to uh, come down his forehead like sweat. I've never prayed like that, and I'm guessing you haven't prayed like that either. The disciples hadn't prayed like that, and so they just, they're smart, and so they, they come together and, and, and they sit with Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach, Rabbi, teach us to pray. Luke chapter 11 recounts that time for us. They go to him, they say, Lord, Teach us how to pray. 
despite having a front row seat, or maybe because they did have a front row seat of listening to Jesus pray, they ask him to teach. Which brings me to one of the overarching themes of today's message, simply is that prayer is a learned behavior. If you and I wanna be better people, better husband or a better wife, better employee or boss or better friend, if we at Outer West want to be marked as a community of faith that's special and different, then we need to follow the ways of the early church together. And we need to pray in a more deeper, more meaningful way, just like the early followers of Jesus. We don't just drift into a devoted prayer life. It's something that we learn together. So what I want to do for a few minutes today is I want to look at a few ways in which we can learn to pray in a deeper, more meaningful way together as a community of faith. No matter where you are on the prayer scale of an expert or you're just here for the first time in a long time, wherever you're at, I hope that something will land with you today. The first aspect of prayer that I want to suggest today is simple. It's foundational. It's that we need to build and embrace prayer patterns. We need to find ways to make prayer an everyday and regular occurrence in our lives. To live out this prayer pattern, everyone has homework this week. I want you to do two simple things. You can start today or you can start tomorrow, but every one of us, I hope, will do two things this week as it relates to prayer patterns. I want you to pick a time, and I want you to pick a place, and I want you to pray every day this week. And I want you to pray for a minimum of 75 minutes. I'm just kidding. In fact, quite the opposite. I love what author Lynette Martin says in her book on prayer. The way to begin is slow. I advise to start praying five minutes a day. This may feel impossibly short, but it is better to get a short time established than to begin with a longer one that you give up on later as being impractical. Should not be longer on one day because it feels nice, shorter on another because the mood takes you. Even if you feel great enthusiasm and want to go longer on one day, please, she says, restrict yourself to five minutes. Set aside the same small block of time day after day, and it can be done. The first thing we do when learning to set a prayer pattern is to set aside five minutes a day. That's all I'm asking you to do. Five minutes out of 1,444, let me back up, 1,440 minutes per day, I'm asking you to take five minutes to pray each day. 35 minutes a week. Some of you are feeling super mighty and holy right now because you pray way longer than that each day. And if you're looking down and judging us, regular people, then pray about it. But for the rest of us, we're going to set aside five minutes today and tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday. This five-minute pattern can help many of us because if we're honest, lots of us get stuck on what I kind of think of as this treadmill of prayer. It's kind of like when we're trying to work out or eat healthy, right? We go too long without praying and we start to feel guilty. Maybe we, feel a mess or we hear a message like this or on the radio or something like that. And we resolve to change our prayer habits. We decide to pray for these long, extended stretches of time. When you can't sustain it any longer, you give up. Do you feel guilty again? 
And the cycle just goes over and over and over. So what I want to suggest is we can break the cycle. Start with five minutes a day. Most of us want to become prayer masters or marathon runners overnight, but it just doesn't happen like that. Another thing is after some time, if you're human, you're probably going to be tempted to quit praying. You'll get discouraged. You'll get bored. You won't see immediate results. But don't give up. Don't change your pattern. Five minutes a day. And don't say tomorrow when you forget to pray that you'll do 10 minutes the next day. Or you'll make up time. That's not the point of any of this. We're not trying to earn anything. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. If you miss a day, go back to five minutes the next day. Pick a time. The same time every day. And I want to suggest whether it's morning, midday, or evening, whenever you feel the best during your day, set aside five minutes. Set a timer on your phone and simply pray. I want to encourage you to be cognizant of where you pray. Maybe you pray in the same location every day. Jesus did this. He went to solitary places when he prayed. He invited his followers to go away on a boat to a solitary place. And interestingly enough, as you look through the scriptures and you see that Jesus' life, he often prayed outside in nature, in creation. Kind of goes against this old school way that you need to be locked in a closet and pray for hours on end. I'm not sure we can pull it off in the 17,000 degree weather of San Antonio, but maybe we just go outside for five minutes a day and pray. Whether it's outside or inside, just find a place that's comfortable. Maybe it has some elements of beauty and nature. Maybe it's near a window looking outside. You're sitting on a bench or sitting on your favorite chair. And in the midst of an overstimulated world that we live in, when you get to your prayer spot, when you start to pray, don't rush. Set your phone on airplane mode. Take a moment to calm yourself down. Perhaps you settle your gaze, your eyes on something, a flower or a tree, a candle. Allow yourself a moment or two to free your mind of distractions. And then you go into your five minutes of prayer where you're just talking to God. Which brings us to the second aspect of prayer. Simple pray, prayer. What should we pray about? How should we pray? As I said, there are literally billions of resources out there on prayer. But I want to focus on, uh, briefly on what one theologian and author, Richard Foster, calls simple prayer. Just keep your prayer simple. Talk to God. Many of us maybe don't pray because we don't think we can pray. We've heard pastors on stage preach or elders on stage and they preach so poetically and flowerly and so spiritually. So you don't feel qualified to pray. You certainly don't ever want to pray out loud in front of other people, which is kind of silly when you stop and think about it. In simple prayer, we simply just pray for what's on our heart. And in simple prayer, we don't have to sound all spiritual and religious. We just talk to God like he's sitting in a chair in the room next to us. Imagine with a spouse if you talked in these spiritual, religious, or old English types ways, they'd be like, what are you doing? Quit being so weird. Just have a conversation with me. I think this can be modeled best in, my, in kids, but in particular in my kids. They talk to God about what's really on their hearts, on their minds. 
This week, I asked my daughter as I was putting her to bed, I said, hey, what's one thing that you want to pray about tonight? And she asked me to pray that Hobby Lobby wouldn't run out of heart-shaped lockets. And the next night, my son, who's four, um, I figured he'd come up with something a bit more profound. And I was like, buddy, what do you want to pray for? And he asked me to pray for his uh, Star Wars Hot Wheels track, that nothing would happen to it overnight. Kids just pray for what's on their heart. I know it might seem childish or selfish to pray these simple prayers, but I think nothing kills prayer faster than when we pretend to be more holy than we actually are, and we pray for things that actually aren't on our hearts or on our minds. Maybe a key to prayer is to pray for things that we're actually interested in. Pray for things that are actually on our heart. And over time, I believe those maybe childish prayers about toys or lockets will develop into something deeper and more like God and more like his heart beat. And as we do life together as a community of faith, it means we pray for our needs, but we also, in an effort to not be so self-centered or always focused on ourselves, as we pray for other people in our community of faith. We go to life group and we share openly about the things that we're going through that are things that we could ask other people to pray for. We share the physical and emotional needs of our life with others so that they can pray for them. That's why every week we have prayer partners along the walls up front here, and y'all can come on up, the prayer partners, because we want to pray with you. There's something beautiful and, and meaningful about praying for the needs of one another. It's another aspect of simple prayer. Band, you guys can come up as well. To do life together, like the early church, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, as Andrew talked about last week, but we also devote ourselves to prayer. The last aspect of prayer that happens when we devote ourselves to it is this profound concept of prayer as relationship. Prayer, probably more than any other activity, any other spiritual discipline, serves as a tangible demonstration of an invitation into a closer relationship with our Heavenly Father. These simple five minutes a day will begin to knit our hearts together with our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> I recently read a story of a parent who was walking through a shopping mall with his two-year-old son. The boy was, being a two-year-old, he was cranky and he was upset. He's crying. Nothing his father did seemed to work. Nothing seemed, to calm, nothing seemed to calm him down. You've seen it in stores and you've judged those parents. You've experienced that as a parent. You're not sure if, if you're like me, I'm not sure, should I just leave my kid there and tell an employee like someone's kid is going crazy on aisle 12? Or this is how my mind works, like should you pick your kid up and drag them out but they're screaming and yelling and now I'm gonna be accused of kidnapping, I don't know. But whether or not you've been in that moment or not, you can relate to this concept or this idea. Nothing seemed to work in this guy's situation. His back is up against the wall. He throws up, as the story goes, a Hail Mary pass. He picks up his son, holds him in his arms, and begins to sing a song that he made up. He said his song goes like this. I love you. 
I love you. I love the way you laugh. I'm glad I get to be your dad. I love you. I love you. I love the way you laugh. I love that I get to be your dad. And suddenly, the song does what nothing else could do. His son calms down a bit. His son goes from tears and snot and throwing a fit to simply snuggling into his daddy's chest. And he listens quietly to the song over and over again on the way to the car. And as his dad sets him down into the car seat and buckles him, his son grabs him by the face and says, Daddy, sing it to me again. Sing it again. Prayer is like that. As we develop these prayer patterns, as we pray simple prayers and we begin to develop a deeper relationship with God as a result of our prayers, with simplicity of heart, we allow ourselves to be gathered into the arms of our Heavenly Father. And the tantrum that we just threw or the anger with our kids that we just had, our tears, our fears, they start to melt away in the arms of our Heavenly Father. In those special moments, five minutes a day, we're praying to our Heavenly Father. And we continue to say to Him, sing it again, sing it again.